Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the 11th episode, my guest is Emma, also known as The Plate Less Ordinary. Originally from the New York area, Emma lives in D.C. now. She describes herself as an adventurous and ambitious home cook. Her Instagram page is exactly about this, and I would also add that Emma is an adventurous and ambitious traveler. Emma, welcome to the Eight the World podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So you're saying this is your first podcast ever? This is. I am an early technological adopter, but I think in the past few years, maybe as I've gotten older after I hit 30, I know that's not very old, but um, in the past few years, I think I started to age out of getting onto the new trends. So I've never done a podcast. I don't have a newsletter. I'm not on TikTok. I kind of doubled down on my existing social media platforms of Instagram, Twitter, and my website, which I put a lot of my energy into. But I'm excited to branch out and to try something new. I think it'll be fun. I mean, we'll get to know more about, you know, who's the person behind all this interesting writing in the website. Because a plate less ordinary, I mean, you, you delve into some pretty interesting issues. How did that come to start? Well, the website and the Instagram started just as my way to capture my memories through food. I love eating. I love cooking. I'm one of those people who thinks that breaking bread is a great way to get to know other people. So it started as a pretty casual way to just put those photos online, um, my, my photos of food. And then I started thinking about developing recipes because I, I do cook a lot at home. But particularly in the past year or two after starting my website, I realized that I also enjoyed writing about culture, doing interviews, inviting other writers to have essays, and looking more at the role that food plays in our lives and less at just oh, here's what I ate, here's what I cooked, and how it tasted. Right. I mean, I see that from the commentary on writing, but also if you look at the the characteristics of the things that you post, and I think you're, what, about a thousand plus posts on Instagram already? Yes, I think I'm at, I'll have to check. I have more than 1,500 posts, and I just hit 2,000 followers, which is not a lot by Instagram standards, but for me, from where I started as just my memory catalog, it was very exciting to hit that 2,000 follower milestone. It's mind-blowing. Funny enough, I went through all 1,500 of your posts in preparation for this interview, and I wasn't going to, I was going to do it. I mean, normally I would do it with someone that that's a guest on the podcast, but there's some comment that you made kind of early in the reading, which was you had um, either an old boss or an old mentor who was an old hand in the, um, in the journalism business that always had fresh notes and was well-prepared. And I thought, okay, challenge on, I better be well-prepared and look through every one of those 1500 posts. Yes, that's true. And I actually took notes for myself before this podcast. Yeah, when I was in college, I um, worked for a pretty well-known old school journalist. And exactly that, he didn't need to have notes. He had so much knowledge. Just having him talk and give his commentary would be, you would learn something from it. But he always said, can you pull me the latest articles? Can you help type up some notes so that I can organize my thoughts before I make a television or radio appearance or anything else? And it, it did really impress upon me the fact that it's important to be prepared and that you can't stop learning or sort of rest on what you've done. I think that's wise. It's very sage advice, actually. 
So the so the thing that I was going to say about going through all fifteen hundred posts is that your your cooking, your interests in cooking, it's a survey. It's a it's a survey across all different cultures and things that you find curious, rather than locking into a specific identity rooted in one specific culture. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think I tend to be one of those people who's very interested in the world and who something will catch my attention and then I'll spend some time on that and then move to something new, but sort of keep building on that old information that is in sort of the back burner of my mind. So a lot of the things that I cook, I eventually revisit, but rather than making them every single week, it might be six months later, it might be a year later. I guess I subscribe to the variety is the spice of life type of mentality. I'm going to give a specific example of this. Uh, Looking through how you've prepared Mapo Dofu going back years, the different versions of it, the comfort version, the grandfather version, it it just seems that it's, it's, it's not just evolving, but more like, let me approach it different ways. Would you agree with that? Yeah. And a big factor in that was this summer with, or last summer during the pandemic, uh, my husband and I and our son have not gone out to see people. We haven't gone out to eat, but my in-laws and my mom have been part of our circle of household members. And my father-in-law got into cooking when he retired. He really likes Sichuan food and Japanese food. And he showed up and had his way of making mapa tofu, which was different than some, you know, restaurant versions that I've had and different than some recipes that I've read. So that was cool to have somebody make it in in our home and see how they do it differently and then shape the next time that I made it. So just to just dig in, like what's specific about how he made it and how's that shaped what you did? My father-in-law is very specific about the ingredients he uses and the technique. He likes to watch YouTube videos and every single part of the process and follow it very exactly. Whereas I cook a lot more from feeling and taste and measurement. So just seeing his approach in the kitchen and his style in the kitchen, even though it wasn't something that I was going to imitate, also because the videos that he watches, some of them are available in English, but a lot of them he watches in Mandarin. Um, because he's a native speaker. But I could still see his process and taste his food and think, oh, maybe there's something about that that I can incorporate the next time that I cook this dish. Looking through just at the Chinese foods that you make, a lot of them are rooted in the emotion of comfort. At what point in your life, I mean, going from someone who, you know, grew up in the East Coast When did this food become available to you and how did it become food of comfort? That's a great question. You know, my whole life, we ate Chinese food, perhaps fulfilling stereotypes about Jewish people from New York. My family is Jewish. My mom's side and my dad, they all like Chinese food. My mom talks about how in the 70s, my great aunt would in Queens and would get uh, black bean clams. Growing up, we had a lot of Cantonese food. Um, Very often on a Friday night or a Sunday, we'd get takeout from our local place that was always mobbed on Christmas. Uh, Or we would go to a Chinese buffet that had American style food, but also the sort of Chinese food that you don't get at a Panda Express or a more commercialized, bigger venue that's the fast food type version. So I can't even remember when I started to use chopsticks because it's just something, as far as I know, that I've always known how to do. The Chinese food that you grew up with wasn't that dissimilar um, to the Chinese food that I grew up with, but it wasn't until I was in college 
that I had the first taste of Chinese food that would look or taste like what I would find later in my life in China. I mean, was there any specific moment that you thought, okay, I've moved from the Americanized Chinese food to um, more traditional Chinese food? One of the things that I saw that you made several times was kanji. And I'd be surprised if you grew up eating kanji. I could be wrong. I didn't grow up eating kanji. Going back to what you had asked about different types of Chinese food. So I mostly grew up eating American-style Cantonese food in restaurants that catered to a mostly Jewish-American audience, many of them being people like my family who had grown up in New York City proper, including Queens and Brooklyn, and then eventually moved to the suburbs. And a lot of these restaurants catered to that audience with food that more closely resembles Chinese food from China than Panda Express type food, but also is fit for American palates. But probably in my early 20s is when I started to branch out and try new things. It wasn't until my early 20s that I ever tried General Tso's chicken because we never ate at fast food Chinese places. So I remember trying it at a a work lunch when somebody had ordered it. And I was like, wow, this tastes really good. I understand why people like this. And then at the same time, I started trying different types of Chinese cuisine, particularly Sichuan cuisine. Uh, Dandan noodles, mapa tofu. Kanji is something that we mostly got when we'd go out for dim sum with friends. Even though it's super easy to make at home, I don't know, I just never made it at home. Um, my husband grew up eating it, and he'd occasionally make it, but it's it's not his favorite thing. But since having our son, I've made it a lot more because it's a very easy food for a baby who's just learning to eat. It's easy to put vegetables in, it's easy to put in flavoring and friendly for something that a little one is going to have. I used to eat kanji because there was a kanji shop basically a block away from where my office was in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is, the buildings are all basically air conditioned and climate controlled for the summer. So when the winter comes, you know, it's 55 or 60 degrees outside and inside and a hot bowl of kanji does the trick. One of the things about kanji now is and this goes into some of the things that you wrote about Thanksgiving traditions, old Thanksgiving traditions and new Thanksgiving traditions, but particularly COVID Thanksgiving traditions. I made a huge turkey and, I, you know, a turkey, normally we have 40 people over for Thanksgiving and it's, it's a big thing. This year was just the four of us. So what do you do with that extra 20 pounds of turkey? And I have to say, I probably eaten more turkey congee over the last month and a half. <laughs> um, than proper turkey itself. And I'm happy with it because I think turkey kanji is better than roast turkey in my book. That's something we tried to get Peking duck for Christmas. So I'm very insistent on Chinese food for Christmas. My husband doesn't care. He would be happy if we ate frozen macaroni and cheese. He's not picky, but I'm I'm very into traditions. I said we need to have Chinese food on Christmas for many years. And this year, I think because so many people were staying home, the restaurant that we ordered from was so crazy. We showed up there. There were people standing around waiting inside. They were incredibly overwhelmed. We had to leave and just uh, postpone until another day. So just yesterday, we ended up finally getting our Peking duck and they give us the carcass with it. So I'm planning to make some duck stock, and then make duck congee from it. Why did you choose uh, cheesesteaks as the dish that the two of us were to make together? You know, I asked my husband about this, and he said, because they are good. (laughs) (laughs) But in addition to the fact that they taste good, it's a dish that gives me some nostalgia. We've spent a lot of great times in Philadelphia My husband's family, some of my family lives in the Philadelphia metro area, and it 
that city makes me think about spending Christmas in Chinatown there, my husband and I celebrating New Year's Eve there a couple of years ago, going to try new restaurants. Even almost exactly a year ago, we were visiting some of my cousins who took us out to a really great restaurant in Fishtown, which is this area that's become very trendy. And I was very pregnant. And it just remembering being around family and in a crowded restaurant, it it just makes me feel so warm inside. So when I think about Philly cheesesteaks and think about Philadelphia, I just, it gives me a really good vibe. So you've made cheesesteaks. I think cheesesteaks are up there. I would have to say if I had to make like a histogram of all the dishes you've made, Brussels sprouts is number one. <laughs> uh, cheesesteaks is number two. Actually, Chinese seafood, Chinese lobster is number two. And cheesesteaks is number three. But you make cheesesteaks four different ways. So there's the filet mignon cheesesteaks. Tell me more about the cheesesteaks that you've made and what you did in preparation for the podcast. So I like to mix it up. So when I make cheesesteaks at home, I like to use nice cuts of meat and I use thicker pieces of meat that wouldn't be traditional. It's something about my cooking philosophy where I value the idea of authenticity, but especially when any of us are cooking at home, I'm all about making things how you like, taking shortcuts if you need to, and just sort of doing what's going to get a nice meal on on your plate. So when I make cheesecakes at home, I usually use something like a New York strip steak. I cook the steak, then I, in the drippings, I saute mushrooms and onions and green peppers I cut up the steak, I put it back in, I put some provolone cheese on top, and I scoop it all into bread. But something going back to the pandemic is if this was non-pandemic times and I felt like a cheesesteak, I'd go to the supermarket, I'd see what rolls they have available that day. Maybe I'd go to the Italian grocery that's near us and see what rolls. They, they get a lot of stuff from New York and New Jersey see what they have. But in the current environment where I'm doing only a handful of grocery trips, the bread is often just what bread I can get. And particularly if I'm doing a pickup from a non-grocery store like like Target, they don't always have rolls or loaves of bread. So most recently I used Hawaiian slider rolls. Right. I saw that. It's sweet, no? Yeah, they're sweet. It's it's a nice change up. It's a sweet roll and they get nice and toasty. So it, it tasted very good, even if it's not traditional. I ended up going to Trader Joe's and I was delighted because they have, uh, they called it shaved steak, but basically it is what it is. And just like you, um, the key for me was nostalgia because, you know, I went to school in West Philly and then a block away was this place called Abner's. And I remember queuing up and getting, getting cheesesteaks a lot. So I wanted to have the whole whiz with experience, um, which meant for the steaks, you know, cooking on cast iron so I could chop it really hard with the, with the edge of a, um, of a, of a spatula, a metal spatula. And with, you know, the, the, uh, sorry, the whiz part, because I know you asked me, is, is that cheese whiz? I'm like, yeah, it's cheese whiz. But, you know, basically I saw some recipe online that if you take, you know, milk and cream cheese and you thicken it with uh, cornstarch and add some turmeric to make it extra yellow and mustard for the flavor and garlic powder, um, and then add uh, shredded cheddar cheese, you get a close enough equivalent to cheese whiz. And the picture came out great. I mean, it really did. And it tasted great. Yeah. How was how was the homemade whiz? Because I, I always go with provolone. You know, the homemade whiz was, it's funny because I wasn't looking for amazing cheesiness like you would with, you know, I've had provolone cheesesteaks before. I was really looking for, you know, the food that I ate as 19-year-old me which definitely wasn't provolone at the time because I don't think I had a provolone cheesesteak until probably a year or two later. Uh, 
all of it was, you know, was, and it tasted, it tasted good. It's, it's more salty, macaroni, cheesy than it is, you know, a proper cheese product, you know, the, the version that I made. And I can't speak to what Cheese Whiz is made of. Um, but it tasted good and it poured, it poured perfectly. So if it was at the right temperature, it poured. And if it wasn't, it congealed, which also reminded me a lot about Cheese Whiz. Yeah, your picture looked really uh, silky. It looked like a cheese that was pouring, very pourable. Because I've tried to make queso dip before, and I tried to take shortcuts mostly for health to cut down on the fat or cut down on the really good parts, and it just does not come out. It separates and... It's one of those things that I leave to the pros now. I attest that the dish that I made, I made no shortcuts to health. <laughs> it was pure, you know, in fact, not only that, but the starting point on my cast iron dish was I had chunks of uh, of uncooked beef fat from a prime rib that I made for New Year's Eve that I kept in the freezer. And I used that. I basically rendered that as tallow. As and mix that with some canola oil to start the process of browning the onions. So yeah, there's, you know, it's it's going to be this is my cheesesteak for 2021. So I might as well have it spot on. You know that reminds me about things in 2021. Have you ever seen the Steakums Twitter account? You know I haven't, but I'm so curious. Have you eaten Steakums? I don't think that I've had a Steakum in a very long time. At this, usually when I go to the supermarket, they have steakums, which I would think of to make cheese steaks at home. But now that their their Twitter account posts a lot about media responsibility and misinformation and critical thinking, and then we'll end it with and we're frozen slices of beef sheets or whatever. It makes me curious to try them again. So I had. I would say my first real cheesesteak was in college in Philadelphia. But I, but before that, I know that as a kid, I've had steakums and the taste, you know, I was, let's just say, I was very grateful that Trader Joe's had shaved um, for the, the cheesesteak I made because it didn't taste like a steakum. It tasted like, you know, it tasted like a cheesesteak. Yeah. Around here, there's been a resurgence in Washington, D.C., or maybe it's just a new trend of cheesesteaks being extremely popular. But a couple of years ago, there was a Philly style sandwich shop very close to where I lived and their cheesesteak was all right, but their, their chicken cheesesteak was excellent. And that was my go-to. That's see, that's, I didn't want to go there, but now that we have to, um, there's there are two places in West Philly near off campus. One was Abner's, which was cheesesteaks, which is how I modeled this one. But on the other side of campus was a place called Billy Bob's, and Billy Bob's was the chicken cheesesteak place. So, and I, and I thought for the sake of this, because um, I didn't realize you were going to make a slider, and 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 I wanted to go kind of straight down the the middle of the lane. But the 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 veer off that I would have made was would have been a chicken cheesesteak. Yeah, that's something I have not made before, but I I would like to make it because the place that we used to go is closed. They might have one location left, but the the location that we used to go to has been shuttered for a couple of years. I like a chicken cheesesteak. I like a chicken cheesesteak too. But then with the chicken cheesesteak, I think for me at least. That's where, you know, introduct, you need to introduce different flavors. So a provolone and an onion and a pepper um, in addition to the chicken. It, it's, you know, it can't be as simple as, you know, meat, onion, yeah. whiz. Yeah. There has to be more things going on. Agree. You mentioned in cast iron. That is something I hope that you write more about because I just started using cast iron this year, like the last person on earth. And it's been, it's been life-changing. I'm so surprised that it's taken you so long because I saw that you have, and I forgot the name of the brand, but it's like the white porcelain with the blue flowers on it. Like you have so many old school kind of implements that 
I would I would have thought that cast iron would have been part of your your thing. Yeah, I do have it's the the corningware with the blue cornflower. Yes, cornware. I had some I got some thrifting. I had some that my mom's friend gave to me. My mom had some. My mom is one of those people who has her pans from the 1960s and 70s, like her first pans ever, um, because she loves to entertain and she loves to cook. But I don't know how I never got into cast iron. I think I was intimidated by the fact that you had to season the pan. It's not that bad. And and for and especially if you're doing, you know, I use cast iron. I don't have a wok, which is, you know, it's its own thing, but um I think one of the one of the things with Cantonese cooking is that you really want to introduce a lot of a lot of BTUs and with the kind of stove that I have the only way to do it is to get a searing hot pan and cast iron I don't I don't feel bad about you know bringing it way up to smoking so that you get that you know breath of the walk type flavor um so yeah have fun with it it's 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 going to be great yeah, can I can I ask you a question? Sure. So, can you talk a little bit about your background? With I heard you mention on another podcast that you had spent like twenty years in Asia. Yeah, that's right. Can you tell me more about your experiences and your path there? Sure. Um, so, I grew up also in the New York area, and you know, with the same Chinese food traditions of Christmas Eve or Christmas Day, and then, mind you, I'm probably 20 years older than you. So around the time that I was in college, um, the Japanese economy was going absolutely ballistic. I th- I thought it was interesting and different. And I managed to go there for a, a one-week trip during my junior year. I fell in love with the place. It's amazing. Then I went back for a summer, and it was even better uh, but when it was time to think about what I was going to do after graduation, um, a lot of the things that are structural to Japanese economy and Japanese society, I found that being someone who wasn't Japanese, not being affiliated with a big company and showing up not connected, there was a rational part of my brain that said, this doesn't make any sense. But thankfully, I had a lot of friends in, at college that were from Hong Kong, and at the time, all of those things that were checks against going to uh, Japan were actually checks for going to uh, Hong Kong. I was living out a year after graduation. I was living out by the King of Prussia Mall. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. I was thinking, you know what? I'm 21 years old. Why am I living next to the King of Prussia Mall? I really could be in Asia right now. So I handed in a notice to the company that I was working for, and I just hopped on a plane and I went it was amazing. I mean, everything about it was amazing. And I, and, you know, I thought, okay, I'll stay for a year or two. But everyone who goes there says they'll stay for a year or two. People who've been there for 40 years have said, I'll go there for a year or two. And I just stayed and stayed and stayed. And then probably eight to 10 years later, I moved back to New York for a couple of years. And then after I met my wife, I thought, you know what, I'd rather be back in Asia. So together we hopped on a plane and we moved to Singapore and I was there for another 10 years. That's been my path. Um, and, you know, part of what kept me there was the, the different cultures that were, you know, two or three hour flights away. The food was amazing. Um, the growth of Asia at the time was amazing. So, you know, I felt quite lucky to, to be able to experience all of that. I've never been to Singapore, but it's, on my to-go list, a good friend of ours has traveled to Singapore a couple of times for work and the the food and the melding of cultures and so many things about Singapore are really interesting to me. Hong Kong as well as a very cosmopolitan seeming city, at least to somebody here in, you know, America the images that I've seen of it, it just seems so fascinating. So did you go to Taiwan? I haven't. Uh, we were, my mother-in-law offered to take my husband and I to Taiwan where she and my father-in-law grew up, but I was pregnant and 
it just seemed like too much of a too much of a schlep for being six months pregnant to go there for the first time. It's it is a schlep. I mean, from New York, there's direct flights, which is great. But that being said, there are also direct flights from um, there are also direct flights to Singapore, but that's like a 19 hour schlep. One of the interesting places that I saw that you went that I've been to several times was Mongolia. Can you walk me through your journey there and and what you experienced? Several years ago, one of my best friends and I had this crazy idea to go on a vacation together. My friend is a very experienced horseback rider. And she said, hey, I saw these tours to Mongolia. I'm thinking about going, but she was single at the time and... We were both not married, and somehow it just sort of came together like that would be a really fun trip. And I had studied Russian language in college, and I had an interest in that area between Russia and Asia, Central Asia, Mongolia historically being uh, related to a lot of the things that had gone on with the Silk Road and trade patterns, um, even though it's a little bit separate. And I said, yeah, I don't really know how to ride horses, but let's go on this adventure together. We just booked this trip to go to Mongolia. And it was crazy because we tried to book through a local tour company. In retrospect, we would have splurged and gone with a Western-oriented company, But the one that we booked with basically was run by a bunch of teenagers and they had 10-year-old boys who were the horse riding instructors. And a lot of other people were like me. They'd never ridden before. Fantastic. But whereas I wanted to go there because I was interested in the culture and the food, um, we went for a festival that they have in the summertime with archery and with wrestling. A lot of the people were sort of Western tourists who just wanted to drink and hang out. They, by the way, they do that very well. The drink hangout in the summertime is, it's, it's an, it's a uh, lifestyle there. Yeah. So a lot of people wanted to do that. And my friend and I, we wanted to ride on the step. (laughs) And thankfully I had her because she was able to make sure that, everything was set up for me on the horse and show me what to do to ride because we ended up riding for hours each day. We camped out in a national park. A lot of the other groups, their tents got rained in. Thankfully, we were okay. But our tour guides, again, who were teenagers, they didn't really know how to light a fire. It was just crazy. One of those things that you're glad that you did in your 20s. And unfortunately, several people on the trip ended up getting injured. Someone got kicked by a horse. Someone got thrown off a horse and hurt their wrist. We had to lobby very hard to be able to see the festival that we had shown up for. It was it was kind of crazy. We ended up leaving a few days early and going to Korea and having like a two-day layover there. And that was fun because I hadn't been to Asia before. But even in that brief time, we we just we we managed to see a lot. We saw a lot of temples and palaces and we went to we went to a bathhouse and we went to an outdoor silent party where everybody has headphones in and they just dance. They're all listening to the same music and we ate some great food and we had a wonderful time. Overall, it was a wonderful memory, the sort of thing that friendships are made of. (laughs) What was your Mongolian food experience like? You know, it actually was not great because the tour group only served us peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. That is crazy. Yeah. So you didn't have Monty or you didn't have like the the noodles or like lamb or goats or whatever, whatever? So later in my life, I ended up trying those things. So I really did have a great time despite how lackluster our tour group was. And later I had the opportunity uh, through other travels to try Monty and Lagman, 
other Central Asian type dishes like plov, samsas, and I grew to really like those things. I had a crazy experience like that. I was there on business and I organized basically just like two guys in a Toyota Land Cruiser. And the goal was um, if we can get out to where some of the smaller rivers and and, um, and creeks were, I wanted to go fishing, but the weather didn't cooperate. So they had rain the, the day before. So the waters were going really fast. But we ended up starting a drive on a, on a proper two-lane road that went to a one-lane road that went to a grass road that went to two kind of two tracks in in the dirt that ended up going just we were just going out and out and out and out and out and out into the um into the wilderness and these guys they didn't really prepare any food so somehow they managed to stumble upon a village where we basically drank vodka and ate Polish sausages. Because as you say, there's there's two levels of ties. There's like the Silk Road ties to Mongolia, but there are also the um, Eastern uh, European communist ties, because mm-hmm. these guys yeah. were communists 30 years before the Chinese were communists, 40 years before the Chinese were communists. So they had these Russian ties and the Eastern European ties. So we were basically eating, you know, cold sausages and, and vodka, which at the time I thought, oh, this is doesn't get better than this, right? Because the, the landscape is beautiful and we found horses and I mean, it was really great. That reminds me of a time well before I had Instagram when I was in college and went on a trip to Mexico with my college friends to Tulum. But then we drove to Chichen Itza and We also ended up on some road on the way back that was very dark and small. And we pulled off in a town and I was the only person who spoke broken Spanish. They just had the most amazing food and they had honey that was locally made. And it's those types of experiences when you aren't expecting it. And when you end up off the beaten path, sometimes when you're not planning to go that way, I guess usually you're not planning to go that way, that end up being some of the most fun times. That's fantastic. Tell me a little bit, because you've written a lot about it, and it's worth reading what you wrote about Thanksgiving and and the new Thanksgiving or the socially distanced Thanksgiving, but just share a little bit of your thoughts about that and what happened this past year. Yeah, so the pandemic has definitely changed my approach to cooking. I'd say a big consideration for me is that I've never been somebody who's a meal planner. Back when I was going to an office every day, pre-pandemic times, I very often would drive home and stop at the supermarket, see what's fresh, see what's on sale, see what's a new item I haven't seen before or what I just feel in the mood to make and buy a couple of things and cook it that night. I would go to the supermarket a couple times a week or the farmer's market and do a small grocery trip. Because of the pandemic, I've had to change those habits. And I ran an essay on my website by a nutritionist talking about the value in relying on your freezer and your pantry and canned goods. And I've found myself very much doing that where I'll have to put in a a larger order. I do a lot of curbside grocery pickup and have food and figure out something to make over the course of the week without being able to pick up new ingredients. And I think with the holidays, that also was true. Whereas I would go out and look for whatever caught my eye, whatever I feel like making or holiday candies and holiday treats. This year, it just sort of was whatever I had planned a couple of days in advance and pared down for a much smaller group of people. It's a shame. I mean, I think obviously there's a long list of, of, of personal and, and, and communal costs to this COVID thing, but just the, the attack it has on, on your energy levels. You know, I was shopping the same way and for someone who was really happy posting all these new dishes with fun things that I'd find in the supermarket. This is pre pre COVID to 
being able to have food that I can store for a while, limited ingredients, you know, forget about fresh garnishes. You know, it got to the point where I think I posted a picture of like tuna melt on underproofed bread that I made. And I realized that I need to take a break from this because it's hard. Yeah, I totally agree. I have gone through periods where I didn't have energy to cook. Uh, I don't know if this is something for you, but for me, because cooking is something and eating that's often a communal activity, not having people to share that with was a huge energy drain on top of everything else. Uh, Even something like my son's birthday is coming up and I'm thinking about making cupcakes or a cake. Uh, For years past, I used to be the person who would enter the dessert contest at work or just make cookies to drop off with friends. And it's still possible, but it's not the same. It's not that same joy because, you know, when you're wearing a mask, it's not as easy to just give somebody a cookie and watch them take a bite in front of you and say, "Mm, this is delicious. And there are no more samples at H Mart. I mean, where's the joy in that? Yeah, that's something that I've been thinking about of Costco, where they had samples or H Mart or other supermarkets. I, I love those things. I'll tell you, there's an expression you probably heard, but it's basically man plans and God laughs. Mm-hmm. I had such a chuckle looking through one of your uh, blog posts back in February of 2020, where you said, okay, in 2020, I want to see more color. I said, okay, that's possible. And then down the list was, and more communal meals. And I said, okay, that one is, that's out. That aged poorly. Yeah, I look back on that and think how bright-eyed and bushy-tailed I was a year ago. I think also it reflects how social media has changed in that time. So the, the things that I wanted to see were both in my life and from what I get out of social media. I think the sense of communal dining has changed in the pandemic for how it's displayed on social media in that I do see a lot more people now filming themselves eating food. And it it's something that I, I personally don't do, but I figure that there must be an audience for it. Was this pre-pandemic or, or, or post-pandemic? So during the pandemic, coinciding with a lot more platforms having a focus on video, TikTok, Instagram. Uh, like mukbang culture yes. and all that. Yeah, sort of the American take on that where it's a selfie of somebody eating a giant cheeseburger. Yeah. Your specific phrase was performative food cultures. Yeah. So just walk me through like your thinking of that and has it changed at all? Yeah. I I had written about exactly that performative food culture. And a year ago, the trends that I noticed were people posting a lot of travel pictures which is always popular in social media and an ice, a single ice cream cone on a brick wall. That was a very popular one. And in the past year with the changes in technology, as well as the changes in our lives, there's obviously a lot less travel photos, although some people still post them and a lot more selfies of people eating a lot more focus on video, a lot more focus on monetization and branding. It's something that I I find is a bit distracting from the communal aspect of social media, that instead of people sharing ideas and sharing their thoughts and their recipes and their experiences, there's been a shift to a lot more, let me broadcast to you what I'm doing. Just generally flexing versus... Yes, <laughs> We had that before. I don't know, because it's interesting. I started, if you look at my early, early posts, I think what's common to you and I is that um, we're both really curious about different cultures and being able to access those cultures through food. So the start of Ate the World was literally you know, me trying to eat all different cultures in the world but also make it more accessible. So I used to go to restaurants and then order a whole bunch of different food and then take pictures of it, but give an idea what the taste profiles were, because I always found it interesting 
that if someone was going to, let's say, a Chinese restaurant and they were familiar with Chinese food, the range of dishes that they would order that complemented each other um, was one style, but then other people would just, you know, one person would order a plate of fried rice, the other person would order a plate of fried rice, the third person would order a plate of fried noodles. And they were all very similar in, in terms of what they're doing. So, but they were happy. So I didn't judge it, but I thought, well, what happens if you knew more about different dishes you ordered and the anxiety over what it would taste like? Maybe I can overcome it with some charts because I like charts. And then I found two things. One was that the people who were doing really well, this is the content creators that were doing really well at the time, um, were photographing beautiful food in beautiful restaurants. And the fact is I live out in the not so close suburbs to New York. So I was never going to have access to the same quality and diversity of restaurants. So I thought, this isn't working. And then once COVID hit, I realized, well, I'm not going to any restaurant. So let me try home cooking and see if I can get to the same place, but through a different way. If I can, you know, try making different types of food, but approach it as a home cook. And that's where, that's kind of where I got there. But the original beautiful food and beautiful places I found were very performative. But successful because it was aspirational or it was kind of like, you know, armchair traveling and I like it, but it was never something that I felt was part of my persona. Yeah, I'm looking right now at the charts and I think this is very cool to map out the flavors. I think you're spot on with helping people understand better what they like and what they don't like and what characteristics are in foods for them to then broaden their palates I also agree with you in terms of the performance nature. There's a whole industry of people who somebody else was just saying this to me. They go to a restaurant, they take a picture of the outside, they take a picture of a couple of dishes. They it's beautifully plated, it's beautifully lit. They post 100 photos on Pinterest or on other platforms. And they don't really tell you a lot about the food except to say it's good. And that's it. But it is very, very popular. I think because of the rapid nature of people looking at social media, it's very easy to scroll through that and like it. And if you're not looking for more of a story, then it's fine to just see the prettiest picture. And the prettiest... So here's where I think I'm the idiot in the story. Because the prettiest picture gets a lot of the follows, which validates the idea of doing it because you're doing it for social media and the more likes you get, it means that socially you're, you're, you're really appealing to a lot of people, which means yay you. Meanwhile, I've gone from cooking food, which is um, a picture of food, which you can't taste, can't smell, but you can see it to just talking about people who make food, which is even, you can't even see that. So the podcast is probably moving away from popularity um, but I think it's fun. I think it's interesting hearing stories um, and hearing the views of people like you, because you know you're obviously connected to different cultures and different foods in a way that's very personal to you. But unless you have a conversation, you know a lot of a lot of the uh, important message doesn't really come out. I think it depends on what you value, also, because if your value is getting a lot of clicks and getting free food then starting a podcast that delves into ideas and conversations is not the way to do it. But if you value learning about new things and different people's approaches to the world and to cooking, then the podcast or the sorts of things that you publish on your Instagram have more value because they, they do take that deeper look into things. And something that I've been thinking about myself recently, and I've I've asked people that I'm interviewing for articles I'm planning to write would be, what's your vision for your content? What's your ultimate goal? Is it to make a cookbook? Is it to be a food photographer? Is it to be a videographer? Is it to be a writer? Because I think if you understand that goal, it will help explain what you should be doing and where you should be putting your energy 
for me personally, getting free food is not my main goal of my website. So getting 10,000 likes from people I don't know is not as important as connecting with a couple of people. Like connecting with you, somebody with whom I can have an interesting conversation that I learned something from. That's awesome. But to go deeper into that, because the question you're asking other people, you know, I'm sure you've thought of it yourself. Like what's the plan for 2021 and what's, you know, because your life has also changed because now you're a mom and, and there are a lot more different competing draws on your time. So what do you think your 2021 is going to look like? It's a great question that I really need to ask myself more. Part of what I've realized is that I enjoy helping other people tell their stories. I have some training as a copy editor and some experience with proofreading and editing. And I really enjoy helping people think critically about the content that they're creating and to sharpen their focus. But it's something that I would say I need to sit down and think about more for myself because there's so much uncertainty. And definitely whatever happens with the pandemic, when we're all able to return to more normalcy, will dictate that for me. I think my immediate plans are to keep writing on my website and have that be one of my signature pieces of my content creation portfolio. And maybe to look into expanding to other types of media I made a couple of Instagram reels last year that I really enjoyed doing, but I haven't done a lot with audio and video in general. So that that's probably something I'm going to explore this year. What I really hope this year is that things start to improve with the nation and the pandemic, because I grew up in a family seeing my mom entertain. My mom was incredible at entertaining and one of those old school people who'd have you know a bucket for ice when guests arrived and hors d'oeuvres plated not even that it had to be very fancy but just this idea of sharing food with people was something that was so ingrained in me from when I was a child and that's really the thing that I'm looking forward to doing sometime in 2021 being able to share that with my family, being able to share that again with my friends. That's my biggest hope for this year. And now being able to share it with my kid. I hope so too. I, I'm, I'm, my fingers are crossed. I just want to be able to hop on a plane and travel to different countries again. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of things that um, I'm optimistic about, but there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm hoping that we can get back to you know, some semblance of a life lived more adventurously. Emma, this has been fun. Yeah, you have put so many ideas in my mind 